we have a confession to make. This isn't our music. This song you're hearing right now, we didn't write, produce, or commission. In fact, we're not even the only content producer currently using it. A few times I have seen a shark actually enter a cage. It's usually a smaller shark that's actually gone in between the bars by accident, and it does not like it whatsoever. It's actually, most of the time, pretty terrified. That's from GQ's The Breakdown, a video series where experts explain how realistic popular scenes from film and television actually are. So how did we end up using the same track? We both secured our music from the same source, an independent audio production house called Epidemic Sound that produces music for content creators across the web. It's a subscription-based service that gives you unfettered access to thousands of groovy, funky, sad, happy, sophisticated, or simple tracks and stems to use for your content online without the hassle of big label takedowns or demonetizing your project. Five years ago, this industry barely existed. Content creators were using copyright music all over the internet with little backlash from major labels. Now, especially with social media companies scanning projects for potential breach of copyright, the royalty-free music industry has spawned hundreds of new companies, just like Epidemic, who are producing music for online content creators like us. It's completely wild and complicated, so we turn to some experts in the field to understand. I'm Laura McInnes-Ray, and this is Beneath the Rhythm, an ARX music podcast. To get a better idea of the inner workings of the stock music licensing industry, we spoke to the go-to guy himself, Daniel Carrizales. My name is Daniel Carrizales, and I do stock music, and I'm, I'm a music composer. I am also uh, an educator. I educate uh, musicians and producers to do music tracks aiming for music licensing. Well, a few years ago, after me and my family moved from the UK with our firstborn child, I found myself in a very difficult situation here in Greece uh, because it was in the midst of the Greek crisis. Uh, we had a family business that it was going to be our, our main source of income back then. And that went down very quickly. So we were like, okay, I was unemployed. And I was just really looking for ways to how can I earn a living in a, in a foreign country where I don't really speak the language. Today, I speak Greek very well. But back then, I didn't really uh, have any, had any skills or any abilities to just go into the workforce. So I came across music licensing, which is something that it has always been in, in the back of my mind. It's something that I knew about it, but I never really had the guts to pursue it. But really, I didn't know how to get into it, really, because it's a really intimidating industry. It's, it's really complicated. Nobody really knows from the outside when you're a musician and you want to get your foot in the door. It's almost like, where do you go? You know, and even though there is information out there, it could be very, very scary. So for me, I found uh, music licensing on, online uh, back in 2013 or 12. I said I could really have to go and see how can I do this. And I came across different libraries. And more specifically, royalty-free libraries, which is stock music, which is just pre-made music that you could just put in a marketplace and start selling immediately. So that was my entry. But it was out of necessity. It was just, how can I get my music out there fast as possible and as quick as possible? How can I, I 
create a catalog, a body of work that I could live somewhere where I don't have to make any, I don't have to reach out to the clients. I don't have to make any connections. I don't have to build any relationships. Uh, I just need to put the music out there and start selling as fast as possible so I can put food on the table. The podcast is something that is very, very new as well. I think I'm going to go now for a year, more or less. So uh, I'm, I'm still very, very new into the podcasting world. But the podcast came about because of my YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel came about because I started selling music online. So it's been a, a, a chain reaction or a sequence of events. And it, but it all started just because of this necessity and this. And for me, it was uh, music. And I knew that I always had a passion to, for, to work for myself and to really start earning some money online, which I have never, ever done before. Okay, so for me to sell my very first music track online, it meant a lot to me because I said, okay, this is possible. I see that other people are doing it. And for me, just the fact that I can sell one track, and I'm not going to pay the bills with that, obviously. Just It gave me the, the, the ability to dream and see, okay, if this other guy is doing it over there, and I can see that he's doing very well, I can surely get there. I decided to, to start documenting my journey in terms of vlogs and, and then with my YouTube channel, just trying to promote as well my music and try to create uh, some kind of awareness about what I was doing. And I was attracting more composers and more musicians that were asking me about what is this thing? How can I get my music on, on royalty-free libraries? And, and, and I can see that you're doing it, so, so how do you do that? So that slowly transformed my YouTube channel into something else. And I noticed that I wasn't getting the customers that I wanted to get, which is video makers and video editors who are the ones mm -hmm. who are in need, or podcasters for that matter. And, and, it, and it turned out to be a side project, but today is literally my, my career or, or what I do is divided literally as a composer to sell music online. And the other half is as an educator and creating online courses and, and pretty much just content creation on YouTube. And then obviously the podcast came about because uh, is you, you just can't, can't ignore that, that podcasting is really important. So I've been on the other side as somebody consuming content. And I'm sure musicians feel comfortable talking to you and getting your insight because you are also a musician. So you probably can speak the same language as well. And they feel, they feel like you understand how it goes on both sides. Yes. The other thing that I do a lot, I talk a lot about motivational and, and stuff and, and mindset. Because as, as artists, not only musicians, but anybody that is involved in the art, we are more fragile when, when it comes down to putting our, our art out there. So if we're talking about us selling something into the real world, uh, we have a lot of baggages. We have a lot of uh, insecurities. We might think in our heads that we're really, really good. But when it comes down to put our music out there and, and being judged by reviewers or by a library, getting rejected, it's really tough for, for most musicians and producers. So I, I try to address those pain points, if you will, because I've been there. And I try to, to expose everything as much as possible that it's not just as simple as creating the music and getting the connection and, and selling it and that's that. It, it, it come, there's something behind that, that us as artists, we have to come face to face. There are different libraries out there. And this is where it becomes very uh, overwhelming for, for most musicians. There are... Libraries that are a little bit more boutique, I mean that they only work with a certain a type of composers and a handful of composers or musicians, and they're looking for something very, very specific, okay? And uh, some libraries work with only singer-songwriters, 
and they want people that they can they can write songs and they can sing. And then on the other side, uh, you have big, big production music libraries, big, big names that they have uh, different labels, if you will. And those are libraries in their own in, in their own right. And they have many, many artists there. And you can you can approach them and you can really uh, join and start licensing your music with them. That takes some time. Now, what I specialize is in royalty-free libraries and marketplaces, really, like Pond5 and Audio Jungle. Now, this is a different uh, type of library. They are libraries, but they are marketplaces. So when you talk about epidemic sounds and, and Audio Jungle in the same sentence, they're different libraries. They're music licensing, okay? It's music licensing, but they have a different approach when it comes down to, to how you license the music and what type of musicians they want to take. So where I found myself in content creation, that there is a gap in the market is that the libraries that I specialize in, I help uh, my students or musicians to get into is stock libraries, royalty-free libraries. And by that, I mean that I could be Audio Jungle, Pond5, which are marketplaces. And I really stress a lot on this because it's, when somebody's talking about music licensing and we're talking about marketplaces like Pond5, where you can find stock video, stock photos and you know other other uh, items but then music is just one element of those you see and you i don't have to approach somebody to join pond5 or audio jungle i can just open an account today and uh, submit my music and yes there's a review process but that's that okay now there's other libraries that are a little bit more higher end if you will they're not a marketplace it's just a library where they license music and, and I will have to really send an email first, okay? Try to reach out, try to make some kind of connection with a person that is in charge of receiving music. And uh, they will most likely will ask you for, for a link of your music that you have online. It's better mm -hmm. if you have some kind of a online presence and you know what you're doing already. And, and then it's a process of building a relationship that could take a little bit longer. And then you submit music and then hopefully you could start getting some placements you can start getting some royalties and, and, and that's a different animal. And usually this takes a longer process and those type of libraries. Okay. That's what I try to stress a lot. You can always do music licensing, but the easiest way to start is by joining audio jungle. And if you can't really submit your music to audio jungle, because it's a little bit uh, easier to, to not only join, but to submit your music and, and really test the waters in music licensing then it's very hard for you to go and approach the big boys, quote unquote, like they say. I, it's funny, I was about to ask, like, what are some common misconceptions that you constantly get hit with? When we're composing stock music, we're blind. We don't know what we're making. You know, we're just making either a happy track or a sad track, or, or it has to evoke some kind of emotion. Mm -hmm. So in the current events, if there's something going on in the world and it's a lot about lab work or people doing, you know, looking for a vaccine, we try to imagine somebody doing this type of uh, videos or this type of content and that's where our music is going to be used for that musicians or people that are doing stock music they will always are they're always really active and they go with a changing season so if it's christmas they're going to be doing christmas music if it's mm -hmm. halloween it's coming it's a little bit dark but you know composers some of the composers friends that i have on audio jungle back then when the whole thing exploded with coronavirus they even changed some of their old tracks uh, titles to coronavirus and, and it, no matter how bad things are, there's still people out there that need music. And libraries will always need fresh, brand new music. 
on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. They're a business. They need to they need to keep themselves in business. And the only way that that can happen is by us composers submitting that music for them to sell it. Because these libraries, they don't make money unless we sell the music. So when, when I get a sale, they get a cut of that sale. And I always go back to the same mindset. It, it go back to the same thing. They're ripping us off. Oh, the library wants to take less cut. And I'm like, listen, everything that has to do with royalties is just very little, okay? And if you're a YouTuber, you know, and you want to make money with ads on YouTube, it's very, very little. You want to write a book, fantastic, write a book, sell it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the money that you're going to get, very, very little. But eventually, if you you just stay at it and you carry on, you know, that could build up, you know? Mm-hmm. This is, I really admire your entrepreneurial spirit and the way you were able to capitalize on something you knew you were good at and passionate about. And now you're sort of spreading that wisdom um, onward to other people for looking for advice. And, and I really appreciate that. It's the digital age. And any creative knows that getting legal advice is probably a smart move when you're starting out. So where does ownership begin and end? We wanted to find out. My name is Andreas Kalagianidis. I'm a founding partner of Aura LLP. Uh, We're a Toronto law firm in business, real estate, and entertainment. I wanted to get into entertainment and music law because really at my core, I wanted to be close to creatives because I, I grew up as a, as a creative and, you know, music and other kind of creative outlets are really near and dear to me, you know, as having played and, and kind of written music my entire life. When I, when I went to law school, really, I would, I just wanted to be as close to that as I could. I, I represent everybody from uh, creatives who, you know, may have a public profile or some kind of quote unquote success to emerging artists and and smaller labels or smaller uh, artists and creatives. And I think because, you know, someone who is, for example, on a Joe Rogan podcast and has that kind of a profile in accordance with that, has a bunch of revenue, say, is the the issues they face on a business side or a copyright side or negotiating a deal. It's no different than somebody who is starting out and doing their first publishing deal or a smaller licensing deal. The amount of money is different. I'm curious about how the landscape has maybe changed since you had, since you began practicing law in entertainment and representing creatives. I guess in the digital age, things are much different and quickly, quickly, quickly are changing. Um, just have you noticed any significant changes in the landscape in terms of when you're negotiating agreements and copyright or maybe a specific media area that you see has changed the most? I mean, I think everything is just much more digital. You're seeing things like new revenue streams opening up, um, things like podcasts, uh, podcasting rights and audio rights. Uh, that's changing, especially like I did a, I did a publishing deal the other, the other while ago. And of course, it was for a book, but a significant part of it was uh, online audio rights for audiobook, but also podcasts and this particular client had their own podcast, but then the obviously, and, and was going on podcasts of other people, but then the, uh, you know, publisher, of course, has its own ideas about how it wants to, to exploit those audio rights. So I think different kind of ancillary revenue streams are, are, are joining up. Um, and I think even with a music, uh, a deal that I did, it was a licensing deal, but it also involved 
significant brand, social media elements, video elements, again, that are, you know, with music, but it's ancillary to just we're dealing with the recording or the composition. And then I think onto that is the importance of data and the importance of, you know, if you're negotiating a deal, so you're doing a deal with a publisher or a label, it's a good idea to share if you can in the data that is collected you know, when your music is out there uh, and a label puts it out there, for example, so you can better understand your market and you can have access to that. And then you can also use that data to make different, uh, you know, new creative assets and, and de- develop different opportunities for yourself. Do you find that um, that maybe clients on the younger end of the scale are sort of more are learning quicker in that way because we're, we're so, we have so much access to everything and we, we are fearful, you know, like we know what, yeah. we know what can be done wrong. We know how quick things can go viral. Do you think that that's sort of like been a wake up call to some of the younger clients or? I, I think I see two kind of paths there. I see one group where uh, they are so multidisciplinary, like they, they are, they understand not only say music production, but also coding, also design, and they bring these things together to create new new kind of products and I, I or new opportunities. And I this was really apparent when I was working with Artscape Daniel's Launchpad on uh, just doing you know music consultations with some of their clients there. And that is what became very apparent is the level of sophistication and kind of creativity from people who are, you know, 24, 22, 17, who can do all these different things, mm-hmm. not just write music or not just design like a, a shoe, but can do everything else. That was, that's a really different thing that you don't see in, I think, people who are older or a different generation. So there's that. But I also think that there's another group of, of, yeah, younger generation that is so comfortable with like they's putting putting music out there and the digital age and just putting stuff out that they don't understand the licensing and the royalty rates and how to affiliate with a with a performing rights organization, what they need to do. They just throw it out there. And you see it a lot in Toronto hip hop, where you know, you got different people collaborating on a beat, a beat goes viral or it becomes a bigger thing. And then there's five producers all trying to figure out who owns what, when, because someone leased a beat at some point. And it's just, there's a mess because everyone thinks, oh, I, you know, I, I got the beat. I paid you 500 bucks for it. It's mine. And that's not really how that works. So yeah, I, I see, I see a lot. I see those two basic camps. Yeah. That makes me think of when I first started in, in music journalism and I sold an interview I did with a local band for 50 bucks. And you know what? In first year, that was cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like that was a settled deal. And and better for you as a creative to to get advice like before you sign something or just as you're before you're creating something. It happens all the time. It is the oldest story that I deal with. But at any point as a creative, right, you know, you're a professional and anybody, anytime someone slides a, a piece of paper across the table, that's not in your favor and you need to understand what you're signing and how it's working. It happened the other day, just the, literally yesterday where I had a call from a, a, a producer and a songwriter who had gotten a major placement in the US. Basically all the deal terms were basically worked out and he's coming to me and saying, well, I already kind of signed this and this is kind of what it is. Whereas if we had figured this out before, 
there is some leverage and we could have structured things differently, right? But it, it happens quite a bit. It's really important just to just if you don't understand something, and in, in music especially, everything is can be very complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, just have the right people around you. You know, reach out to a lawyer, to your manager, to your your people. I, it's becoming more ubiquitous. It's it's because you know music, especially in the in the online digital age, is the importance of music, which has always existed, but it's becoming more apparent because you can't have video on like online, which is the dominant form now, without music or sound. It, it just it's just a terrible product, right? So there is so much demand for for music, right? And and again, everything's becoming interdisciplinary, meaning like the barriers between photography, fashion music, movies, short clips, social media are all breaking down very, very, very quickly. And that means that, of course, there's going to be this need for royalty-free music, which is not the same as copyright-free music or is not the same as free music, <laughs> but it's just a different royalty structure. And I think that's that's an important consideration to kind of understand what people are getting into. It's not free, it's just structured differently. Could you define in your own words sort of the difference between royalty-free, copyright-free, and free music? Yeah, so royalty-free music means that you're, you're using generally some kind of a service like uh, Audio Jungle, for example, or there's, there's dozens of others, and you're paying a, a license fee up front for a certain bundle of rights that you're getting. It doesn't mean, so it means that typically, depending on what use you're using, whether it's you know personal or, or commercial or different variations of that, you're not paying or you are not paying a royalty to the, the content owner, to the musician, the composer, but that doesn't mean that Audio Jungle is not paying it. Um, so, and it doesn't also mean that, that, so if you buy something from Audio Jungle and then you make a YouTube video, that YouTube is not also paying royalties to SoCan or to, uh, you know, CMRA or Harry Fox, like, which is a separate thing. It's just that means that you're not paying for it. So, and then copyright free music is really a kind of a unicorn. I mean, it doesn't really exist because it implies that there is no copyright on uh, a piece of music on a recording or a composition, which doesn't exist because the moment you create something that is original, uh, basically you've got copyright rights to that thing. So unless somebody says something is in the public domain or they disclaim all copyright, which is extremely rare, uh, there really is no such thing as just copyright free. It's so much gray in, in music. Music licensing is never simple. It has never been that way because there's so many overlapping rights. It's always been like that. But then when you add the kind of ubiquity of digital distribution, and like you say, everyone's putting music to movies or videos and mashing things up and throwing them online or throwing them on social media, it's just there's so many overlay of rights and rights holders, and it's it's very confusing. And that's why I think these kinds of services that aggregate these these sources of music are so popular because they're saying, listen, we'll handle the money for you. You just pay us a subscription or you pay us $99.95 and we'll take care of it for you. Can you predict just how quickly things are moving digitally? Any large problems ahead for creatives that we might not have addressed yet if we just continue 
with this sort of mess of ownership and everyone has access to everything? That's a good question. I think it's not it's not really a prediction because it's already happening and I'm not certainly not the only one uh, saying this, but part of the issue is that I think copyrights become commoditized, especially in sample music. Like uh, this kind of guitar riff is like that kind of guitar riff is like that kind of guitar riff. It's all the same. It's not really going to matter. So I think there's a commoditization that could happen. But the other thing that people are really weary about is the royalty rates that are being paid to composers. You know, that's a big problem in the U.S. It's a big problem in Canada, but it's been a big problem in the U.S. because, again, it's just commoditization. It's just as music becomes more ubiquitous, you know, the content users, like, say, Apple or YouTube and Google, they don't want to pay for every single use, right? So they drive down rates legally at the copyright boards, and that becomes a problem. It also becomes like with the streaming services, the same issue with the recording and the composition, right? As music becomes everywhere, how do you ensure that creators are appropriately compensated for all the uses? And so I'm not I'm not the only one saying that that's become a big, a big issue in the last five years, but I think that's gonna become more of an issue. What happens when you challenge copyright and totally flip it on its head? Can we use technology to manipulate access for the betterment of songwriting? We spoke to a lawyer musician who basically spearheaded this movement. Uh, my name is Damien Real, and I'm a lawyer, technologist, and musician who currently a day job is with Fastcase to build AI solutions for lawyers. Uh, but my project that we're going to be talking about most for this project is all the music where I'm a co-founder with Noah Rubin, where we have mathematically exhausted every melody that ever has been and every melody that will be copyrighted it all, then placed it into the public domain to be able to keep targets off the backs of defendants in copyright infringement lawsuits. So I first came across your project with Noah um, in an article, and I remember reading like, how the hell are they going to do that? Or the wait, they already did it. Okay, okay. And I was really uncomfortable. Like as a, as a musician, someone in media, someone who's really inclined and interested in this area, I was... I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. I have to, I have to know more. So how to, what was the impetus sort of behind the project? Like what was the process of that like? Yeah, at the time, Noah and I were both working for the same company doing cybersecurity. And so we were working for a very large international company whose name you know, but I can't say. And I had the idea, I thought, you know, we know that in cybersecurity, we can brute force a password. So I, the brute force is being able to take a computer and guessing your password by going A, 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 A B, A, C, A, D, until it finally hits on your password. That's called brute forcing. Um, so I said, Noah, do you think we could do the same thing for music? Could we go da 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 and then just mathematically exhaust it? Noah said, hell yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so within a couple of hours, he had built a prototype where we had made about 150,000 melodies written to disk uh, using a format called MIDI. And so that what started at, as almost a thought experiment, like, could we do this? Um, it started occurring to me that this actually might solve a big problem that had been worrying me since uh, the early 2000s when I was in law school. And that's the George Harrison case, uh, where the George Harrison was alleged to have infringed George Harrison's My Sweet Lord was alleged to have infringed the 
Chiffons, he's so fine. And the judge in that case said that George Harrison uh, had infringed, but not consciously, but he had subconsciously infringed the chiffons. And that just right. stuck in my craw. I thought that that just doesn't seem right because every other area of the law requires intent. You know, if I accidentally bump you and you fall off a cliff, that's much different than me pushing you off the cliff. Mm -hmm. Intent totally matters. Uh, so, but for this, uh, the judge is saying, you know, it doesn't matter whether George Harrison intended to infringe or not, he's on the hook. And then I thought, how does George Harrison or people in George Harrison's spot, how do you defend against that? How do I, as somebody living in 2020, say I've never heard a song before? I've never heard it over a friend's loudspeaker. I've never heard it playing over the grocery stores. Proving a negative is philosophically impossible. And proving that you've never heard a song before is next to impossible. There's really no way that you can defend yourself. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that I thought, uh, you know, maybe Noah's in my project. Uh, could actually help solve that problem. Because if we can mathematically exhaust every melody that's ever been and every melody that mathematically ever can be, place that under copyright and then put that immediately into the public domain, that at least gives some way for the George Harrisons of the world to be able to fight back and say, you know, one, I've never heard your song before, but two, Damien Real and Noah Rubin under the All the Music Project have already made that melody in 2019. Uh, it's right there on a disc and they placed it in the public domain. So you person who's suing me, not only did I not hear your song, but Damien Real and Noah Rubin beat you to it in 2019. So knock it off, just make more music and stop suing people. You know, what was sort of the reaction once you did release it into the into the public domain? Because I'm sure there were people who were like, Ugh, how do we trust this? Not sure how I feel about the these these two white guys owning all the melodies ever. <laughs> yeah, and, and I was I was very worried about that reaction. I, I tried to emphasize the fact that we are not megalomaniacs who are trying to take over copyright as it's known. Uh, mm -hmm. I tried to emphasize that the goal here is to be able to help expression, not to squash expression. So that's thing number one. And I would say the thing number two is the way that I think we're helping expression is to be able to let users make music, to let musicians make music without fear of getting sued. We, I heard lots of stories after the talk from musicians who say, yeah, you know, before I release an album, I have a listening party with my friends. And I say to my friends before we start playing the album, listen for any melodies you've heard before in another song because I don't want to get sued. And that story made me sad that they weren't even thinking of uh, when they were making their own song. So the whole idea of getting sued for something that either you haven't heard of before or that you've heard and long forgotten and then not releasing music as a result of that, that seems like a shame. It seems like we should be able to encourage more beauty going into the world and not discourage it through this kind of litigation. And to that point, I, when uh, you know, I also think you know they totally ripped that off. I, I think we we sometimes have to parse what they ripped off. Uh, mm -hmm. Is the thing they ripped off the groove? Uh, you know, it, it, and if that's the case, did every blues person rip off every other blues person from the right. beginning of time, right? So to what extent does groove rip off just be genre? And so uh, if you extrapolate blues to pop, um, you know, one pop song often sounds like another pop song. Uh, is it because they ripped it off or because that's just the genre? Uh, that's thing number one. Uh, thing number two on they ripped off, maybe is the aspect of it is, did they rip off the melody? Uh, did they mm -hmm. have the same melody? And that's really what our All the Music project goes to is the melody. And from there, you have to think, okay, what is a melody? But it's actually the changing in pitch. Uh, because if you think about an original song and then the covers of the song, those often change rhythmically, right? Uh, that, mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you often don't have uh, the same uh, rhythm from the original to the second. So really, the only thing that is the same between the original song and the cover is the change in pitch. So if somebody is ripping off the change in pitch, is that something we want to sue over? In a, in a scale, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 
there's only eight possibilities uh, within a major uh, diatonic scale to be able to use. And so we, at this point in our juncture, uh, put tens of millions of new songs into the world every year. We're going to run out of those notes. So the odds of somebody accidentally stepping on the same combination of pitches as somebody else five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 95 years ago, as far as back as the copyright goes, the odds mm -hmm. of that are pretty high. So we have to think, okay, what do we do with that? Do we allow everybody to sue everybody over you stole my change in pitch? Or do we say, hey, hold on, this this whole you stole my melody thing has gotten out of hand. Uh, let's let's reduce it right now. And do you think since since this project sort of launched and you did put all this into the public domain, do you find this has enabled sort of a different conversation about the way we're going with creating? Like we have tools at our fingertips and we can share so quickly. Things can become viral so quickly. Fake news can be spread so quickly. Like what? What has that conversation sort of, or the landscape rather, been like since? Yeah, so the um, you're right that decades gone by to be able to get my music on the radio or widely distributed, uh, you needed to have a record deal. So that is a very small percentage of the songs written that actually reach the ears of folks. Today, I can record a TikTok video and it'll, uh, it can go viral without having to get it copyrighted uh, in the, formally within the copyright office or without really having to do anything other than hit send on my phone. So as a result, more and more bedroom songwriters are putting more and more music out in the world, which is crowding out the space of available melodies that are left. After my project and before my project uh, in 2019, almost every one of those lawsuits had found against the defendant. So they'd found against George Harrison. More recently, it found against Katy Perry, who was alleged to have infringed flame. And so that was uh, one of the things that I was hoping to change as a result of my project, that I wanted lawyers and judges and litigants to be able to know about the project, to be able to help do defenses for that. It may be causation, but after the TEDx talk was released in February of this year, of 2020, before the TEDx talk was released, almost 100% of the defendants lost. Um, mm -hmm. After the TEDx talks was released, uh, the Led Zeppelin case came out, uh, and that Led, uh, that Led Zeppelin stairway to heaven said that there is no infringement of uh, of the Taurus, um, and uh, one of the reasons that they used was because of the simplicity of the melody. After that, the Katy Perry case actually reversed the previous decision and found in favor of Katy Perry, and essentially the most recent decision from the Katy Perry judge is that aligning with my TEDx talk to be able to say uh, that that melody from Flame is so simple. Uh, it's it's dun 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 dun. That's just a descending line. That if you're a musician, you're like oh, I've played that line a gazillion times, right? Mm -hmm. That's because it's so simple and so common. The judge said, as a matter of law, that could not be copyright infringement because that is that is too common. So both of those things happened. Both the Led Zeppelin case and the Katy Perry case happened after my TEDx talk. Probably co a correlation, uh, right? Probably not causation. Uh, but at any rate, I'd like to think that my goal was to have as many lawyers and judges as possible hear my TEDx talk. Flame in the Katy Perry lawsuit. Flame said, "I have I Flame have no evidence that Katy Perry or her co-songwriters have ever heard my song before." And one of the necessary aspects of copyright infringement is access. That Katy Perry needs to have accessed Flames. If you don't have access, you don't have infringement. Um, so the way that Flame tried to get around it is to say, "Well, I have no proof that Katy Perry has accessed my." my video, but I have 3 million views on my YouTube, therefore she probably heard it, right? Uh, and so that, that was enough for the jury to be able to say, yep, she probably heard it. Uh, but again, 
every other case, uh, that kind of inference isn't good enough. <laughs> you need mm -hmm. to have evidence that Katy Perry heard the thing. If Katy Perry didn't hear the thing, she didn't have access. And the first thing is that not only do we place all of the melodies in the public domain, but we also placed all the tools we used to create the melodies also in mm -hmm. uh, in open source. Uh, so anybody, you or any of the listeners can go to allthemusic.info and download uh, the program we used to be able to do it. The program churns through about 300,000 melodies per second, that it, it creates 300,000 melodies per second. So that if somebody does that, it gives one pause as a musician to think, should I as a musician, musician be protecting the thing that the machine can churn out at 300,000 melodies per second? Is that the thing that I want to protect? Or instead, do I want to protect my melody plus the lyrics, plus my instrumentation, plus the uh, chords that I put behind, all the harmonies, and plus my ache of my voice, and plus my my guitar wailing, right? My those heartbreak. Are the things, right. I mean, all of those things are what makes music worth listening to and what makes music worth making. Uh, the thing that is does not uh, make music worth making is the change in pitch that a machine can churn out at 300,000 melodies per second. Let's copyright the things that machine can't do well, which is all the things I mentioned, the wail of the voice, the wail of the guitar, the, the aching, uh, the things that we really love as listeners and musicians and that machines cannot do. Uh, there's also a, a big idea uh, that I've had that uh, we have now arguably created the entire data set of every conceivable mathematical melody that's ever been. So wouldn't it be interesting to be able to take every copyrighted song and place it in that grid? Uh, to say that, you know, of the, you know, we'll say uh, just for a sake of estimate, uh, if, if there are 30 million songs, then uh, let's see where those songs fit in. And then let's overlay that with every public domain song, every song from Bach, from Beethoven, from Mozart, from all the others, and be able to see how many currently copyrighted melodies were also done by Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. And then that will give maybe current songwriters uh, an idea that, that, oh, that melody that I'm going to sue somebody over, Gosh, I accidentally nicked that from from uh, Mozart, or accidentally nicked that from Bach. I didn't even know that, um, mm -hmm. but might put them from the offensive side to be able to say, "I'm going to get that person." Maybe think of it more defensively. That you know, I may be shooting somebody today, but I could get shot by the errors of Bach, <laughs> or I could get shot by the errors of Mozart. Or can I even copyright this thing that Bach created in the 1700s and 1600s and fell into the public domain? If something is in the public domain, am I able to pluck it out of the public domain? These are all questions that I hope musicians think about. So that's that's really being able to think that it is a circular firing squad. I may be shooting today, but I might get shot tomorrow. And maybe we should just not shoot each other. Maybe we should just make more music. So that all that demonstrates all the more why we should not be filling up these spaces with you stole my melody lawsuits. Do you have a favorite copyright case that you don't agree with necessarily? Like one where you you favored one song and you don't hear the difference or one where you're just like, this is too good of a song. Let's just leave it. Let's just leave this. <laughs> uh, so the, the, where I favor the previous uh, the, the songwriter rather than the later songwriter? I would say that the the blurred lines case, the the one with uh, the Pharrell and uh, the Marvin Gaye. Marvin state. Gaye. Yeah. So the um and that's uh, the blurred lines, and then I uh, got to give you up. I think is the Marvin Gaye mm -hmm. side of it. That is a widely disparaged case, not just in my view, but lots of musicologists and lots of musicians, largely because of the things we talked about earlier is that case did not involve stealing of melodies, did not involve stealing of lyrics, did not involve stealing of anything except for the general groove. If groove is copyrightable, God help us all. 
because uh, you know there's there's blues everybody's been stealing everybody's groove for the last hundred years uh yeah. you know pop everybody's stealing everybody's groove there is no way to be able to distinguish one song in a genre from another song in a genre so i would say that that is a copyright case that i would say wrongly decided and that i would hope is not uh, going to be uh, replicated anytime soon so how many melodies have you created so far uh yeah, so we're we're just uh, always expanding our data set. So when I gave the TEDx talk, it was 68 billion with a B. Uh, at this point, it's 200 billion with a B, and we keep making more more of it. Partially to be able to expand the data set just because we can, uh, mm-hmm. but partially also knowing that if we, as ostensibly good actors, fill in as much as possible and put it into the public domain, that leaves less space for bad actors to be able to try to bring it on themselves uh, using the tools to be able to do something bad with it, where we're trying to do something good. Fairness and compensation. Two words we don't typically associate with the music industry. The CEO of Epidemic Sound thinks that's bullshit. If music resides at the core of storytelling, and that much is true, we should create a model to perpetuate that. So, he did. So my name is Oscar Höglund. I am a co-founder and the CEO of Epidemic Sound. So the tale of Epidemic starts in 2008-2009. At that time, we were five co-founders originally. So two of us were uh, knee-deep in TV production. So we were passionate storytellers working at a production company called Zodiac. And we made both TV shows and feature films. So we did The Go with a Dragon to Two, first the Swedish ones and then the American ones. We did all different kinds of shows. And we were passionate about storytelling, but we felt at the same time that the world was changing. So we were seeing the end of a... uh, uh, of a legacy, if you will, the TV legacy. And the internet was shape shifting at great speed. And it was pretty obvious for us that the internet was initially going to be all about text and then eventually about video, sorry, pictures. So this is pre Instagram. But over time, we always knew that it was going to be about video because it's such, such a, such a rich medium. So these things were happening in the background. And we were wildly frustrated at the same time. So we were having issues because when we wanted to bring our shows to life, when we wanted to add nerve and edge and and really make our content stand out and make it memorable, that was the act of uh, soundtracking our content. That was the act of bringing the stories to life. And you would have thought that that's the most productive, most exciting part of the content creation process. It was the exact opposite. You were terrified for adding music into your content because basically you couldn't win. You were either not licensing the right music, or you didn't understand what platform, there weren't any tools, the music was either too much or too little or not at all. So it was something that you would outsource and dread. And we felt that that's wrong on so many levels. So the initial problem that we felt needed solving was, wouldn't it be cool if we lived in a world where adding music was like the pinnacle of the creative process when you tell stories? That was the feeling that we wanted to um, to achieve. The other side was that we had a couple of friends who were very accomplished music producers. And it was so painful to listen to them because some of them were very fortunate to be well off in the sense that they had made the hits that traveled well and that monetized well. But the vast majority were the 99%. So there were record labels, record publishers, PROs, neighboring rights organization, different management uh, constellations. And they were basically always coming out on top. 
and the musicians were typically losing out. So music creators and artists and songwriters and anyone sort of running the creative endeavor of making music, they were being short-ended. The second thing that we felt was, wouldn't it be friggin' awesome if there was a music industry where musicians made shit loads of money, where we had a music industry that was optimized for music creators as opposed to middlemen? So there we were, five uh, clueless Swedes who just saw these two big problems that were looming around the corner. And there were two more ingredients in, into sort of founding of Epidemic. One was additional Swedes, and their names were De Daniel and Martin. And they started this small company called Spotify around about then. Such a and small company. <laughs> isn't it? it, it it's, it's cute. Uh, and I think that they got tons of stuff right. I'm quite convinced they got tons of stuff wrong. But one of the most prolific things that I think they saw earlier the most was a paradigm shift in the sense that they realized that people were willing to value access higher than ownership. Okay, rather than paying 10 bucks or 15 bucks and buying one album and playing it until your ears fall off, maybe there's a world where people would be willing to rent the entire repertoire of the, of the world for 15 bucks, but you only get to do it for a month at a time. So you shift to an access model as opposed to an ownership model. And they obviously got it dead right. And that was wildly inspiring. Like, hmm, subscriptions, hmm, that's that's a good idea when it comes to music, especially when you factor in the whole royalty element to it. Um, I love hearing about this meeting of the minds. So many big brainstorming ideas flowing around all at the same time. Yeah, I didn't do it alone. I did it with a group of incredible people. And in the process, we fundamentally changed how the music industry worked. We brought transparency and fairness. We took out uh, inefficiencies. And hopefully, I like to think that we repositioned creativity. We put it further up the food chain. So we made creativity not just for music creators, but for storytellers and anyone who wants to touch people using the internet. We made that possible. And I have some crazy stories I'm going to tell you now. Listen to this. So taking a step back, so that's the founding story of Epidemic. We're very much driven by that with these two problems. So difficult to find music, so difficult for artists to support themselves. We acknowledged the internet. We saw Daniel, what was happening, subscription and everything. And we felt that we'd like to contribute. I want to be there, CRISPR or not, 100 years from now, 50 years from now, talking to grandkids and saying that we helped in a small way to soundtrack the internet. That's how it all came to be. I deeply admire this putting the storyteller up, like having them be the center of the drawing board, if you will. But at the core of it, somebody is trying to emote something and tell other people something, make people feel. So I think, especially in the, in the music industry, as complicated as it is, if we try to keep that at the center, where we are valuing people as people, like you said, in fairness and in yeah. um, compensation, that's massive. <laughs> uh, there's this business idea that uh, humans are rational. Uh, I, I forget the exact term. It's something like not homo sapiens, but homo economicus or something like that. And it's the assumption that, that humans will always optimize for the best rational and financial outcome in any given circumstance. It's a great theory. The only problem is that it's dead wrong because humans aren't rational. Humans are emotional. And I believe that with so every cell of my body because Looking back at my own big decisions in life, they never tend to be uh, rational. They're always emotional. Um, when I looked at my wife and I just felt that she's the one, so there was no rationality, it was emotion. 
when we walked and we looked at a couple of different apartments, we get into this apartment and I go, I can't explain it. This is where I want to live. And I think that what's so prolific about that is that the currency of emotion is music. That's how you get in touch with these feelings that ultimately govern and steer and influence such a huge part of your life. I couldn't agree more. We very much put storytellers at the center and we try and see music as a way to facilitate and help and amplify or alter and change. And as a storyteller, we see music as a tool to connect with the emotions that ultimately make you feel. It's the, like I said, it's the taste of food. It plays such an important part. That's what, yeah, we're excited about that. I think the way I think about it is the following, that as a musician, you're ultimately looking for two or three things to help you along. You wanna get played, you wanna get paid, and you wanna get made. So let's start with the last one. Let's talk about getting made. So what we realized early on was that as a musician, you're constantly looking to evolve. You're looking to express yourself. You're looking for a context. You're eventually looking for an audience and for uh, a way to sustain your lifestyle. But before that, I think you're looking to develop your craft. You're looking to be on a journey where you go from something to something. We understood that earlier than most. I think we also early on acknowledged that being a musician and maybe being uh, a composer uh, is one of the most loneliest uh, lines of work that there is because you're basically most of the time alone with your demons when you're trying to be creative and that can be a daunting task so the fact that we're now 400 people who work at epidemic we have a huge community of both employees and music creators that we work with and that you get to have colleagues you get to have a context you get to have studios you get to bounce your ideas of something you get to have a bad day and a good day you get to be inspired you get to be part of a community that was I think a very compelling part of what we understood early on. So let's create community through the whole getting made part. The second thing that we realized was that musicians want to get paid as well. That, that was a no-brainer, obviously. Um, but the way we saw it was that we took issue with how the music industry was working back in the day because not all of the time, but 99.8% of the time, the way it would work would be that you wouldn't get paid up front. You'd have to make something and it would be speculative because I'm not gonna pay you for this. I'm gonna take your track and I'm gonna represent you and hopefully you're gonna get played. And if you are, that might generate royalty. And if there is royalty and it's, and it's reported in the right way, we're gonna accumulate that royalty for you. And then we're gonna deduct all of our fees and taxes and first class tickets and the assistance that we have. And then when we're done doing that, and if it's the right name at the bottom of, of the sheet of paper, we're gonna split that revenue with you, but we're not gonna split it 50-50 because this lifestyle is lavish and expensive. So we're gonna take 75% and you may end up getting 25%. And we took issue with that model because basically it sucks. And so we went, okay, what would be the right thing to do? Well, we wanna do the following. We'd like to pay upfront and make sure that we always put our money where our mouth is. We'd like to commission tracks because that's the vast majority of what we do. And let's say pre-COVID but even including COVID and say that this was the golden era of storytelling. I think that evolution doesn't happen linearly, but I think it happens in incremental steps and they can be small and sometimes they're huge. I think we've just gone through a huge step because if you think about the last couple of years when it comes to storytelling and you look at where YouTube is at now, the scale, you look at Facebook, you look at stories, you look at tweets that basically just got invented, you look at TikTok, you look at snaps, you look at the different filters that you can start to apply. There's been such a renaissance in terms of formats and new ways of storytelling, adding on top of that, that you, we've made internet access, accessible to a much larger part of the world's uh, population. 
So I think that we will be looking back in a few years from now saying that this was the golden era of storytelling. Never has there been so much ingenuity, so much progress, so much expression. Yes, there's a dark side. There are deep fakes. And you could argue that Facebook broke democracy and stuff. But mm-hmm. I think that there's a huge amount of change. There's amount of turmoil. And there is definitely a case to be made that we're in like the golden era of storytelling. I think some of the things that get unlocked in, in that and why we're seeing so much change is because I think that there have been a couple of fundamental shifts also when it comes to content creation. In a world where we're all isolating, people need digital togetherness. So I think that we've seen a massive surge in both musicians and in storytellers join our mission to be a part of what we're doing. We've seen huge shifts in what kind of music people are listening to. So I'd almost use the expert, you know, comfort food. Uh, Many years ago when we kicked things off, as I mentioned, we came from TV production. And it was interesting because back then there was, and I assume that there still is, there was a difference in uh, US-based storytelling and European storytelling. And for lack of a better word, the US model was more is more, and the European model was less is more. And what I mean by that is that in in Europe, when we were producing a very, let's say, a very touching scene, as Europeans, we wanted very sparse music that didn't amplify or didn't take over the scene because the scene itself was very powerful. And so the music should just support that and be as almost as a an anti-expression to what was playing out. The majority of the music that was made available to us at the time was U.S. production music. And the U.S. way of doing it was more is more. So if the scene was sad, there was hundreds of tracks which were full-on orchestra, violins, sort of Hollywood-style, let's bring the drama. And in Europe, that didn't fly because everyone immediately felt, this is too much, this is insincere, this is cheesy. And so we were super frustrated because we wanted to find a really sparse, delicate, just one simple violin, one cello, and we couldn't find it. So we invented a category called small emotions. And small emotions were single instruments that were intended to help contrast and in, in the contrasting amplify what was going on in the scene, which was dramatically different for how storytelling was working back then. I, I, I think that everyone ought to be humble that we're by no means, uh, we haven't cracked it. We're constantly learning and we're looking to improve and we change when we adjust and we try and be agile. So I think, again, it ties into the whole creative process. If you stagnate and think that, look, this is the best or I'm done, so I am creative. That's never a good place. So I think you should constantly be looking to change and evolve and, and challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what we keep on striving towards and, and pushing towards. Um, yeah, hopefully we're never going to be done. Uh, I can say now I know that we never are, but we're going to be in incrementally improving every single step of the way mm-hmm. until we're never done. It's beautiful and it's awful and it's rewarding and it's frustrating and it's it's life. A huge thanks goes out to Daniel Carrizales, Damian Real, Andreas Kalaginidis, Oscar Hogland, Stephen Setchell, and everyone at Epidemic Sound. And finally to Chameleon Glade, the band who created this wicked track that has since become our soundscape. program was produced by myself, Craig Clemens, Regan McDonnell, and Tony Young. 
Images by Andre Grant, social media by Runjum Jaga. And I'm your host, Laura McInnes-Ray. You've been listening to Beneath the Rhythm, an arts music podcast. 